This morning, we get to jump back into a book, uh, a book of the Bible. If you're new with us, historically, we just teach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And over the last few months, we've kind of gone off course and um, did some stuff with studying the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, and there's just something that like gives my heart a ton of peace when we jump back into a book. And so for the next about two and a half months, we're actually going to be in the book of Nehemiah with a little break there over Christmas. And so this morning, we're going to kick that off. And it's going to be a little bit different. I feel like I say this every week, but we're just doing everything we can to go against the norm, you know? Uh, so as we jump into this book this morning, there's a couple things. This morning is going to be basically an overview of the whole book of Nehemiah. I want to paint a broad stroke picture for you, give you guys an idea of where we're headed over the next two and a half months. Um, but it's, it's also my hope that over the next two and a half months that we really dig in to the Word of God. And so to make that kind of easier or more palpable for some of you, um, we have these journals over there, these little Nehemiah journals. And in these journals, there's the readings. And so it's got the full book of Nehemiah in it as well as like journal entries. And so uh, we, we got these for half price. And so they're like five bucks, I think, if you want to get one as well as, as we have printouts of where we're gonna be in what passages over the next month and a half. And so you can read ahead and you can take notes inside the journal um, along the way and on Sundays and just use that to kind of aid in the study process for you. And this morning, again, it's gonna be an overview. And so I'm literally gonna have a section this morning where we read scripture for about 12 minutes straight. And so some of you aren't used to that. Um, and I kind of like that, to be honest with you. Uh, it's something really neat about grounding the church in the Word of God, and it's really easy nowadays to get lost in uh, trying to put together TED Talks for Sunday mornings that represent an opinion versus just the Word itself and letting it do what God intended for it to do. And so it's going to be different for us. And so we've got, I basically took the whole book of Nehemiah, 13 chapters, and I compressed it uh, into some sections and ran them together, and I'm just going to read like a summary of the book of Nehemiah for you guys in just a moment. So let me pray for us and let's dig in this morning. Jesus, we, we thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for each person in this room because I don't count it as coincidence that they're here this morning. I pray, Jesus, that you'd anoint and bless this time. God, that you would use your word to accomplish your work. Jesus, that it would go forth and it would not return void. God, I pray for the opening of our hearts, even myself this morning. God, as I can sense in life sometimes when I feel tense and I can feel anxious, and God, I can feel as though things are out of control, and I pray, Jesus, for us this morning that your peace would settle upon this room, that your spirit would just engage us in a real and tangible way this morning, and we give this time to you, Lord, even as we spend a bunch of time reading in your scriptures this morning, uh, God, protect our hearts and our minds from getting lost with all the things that we have to do after this gathering this morning and everything else going on in our lives, and I pray that we'd be focused and that you'd allow us by your spirit to just be engaged in your word this morning and that it would impact our hearts. And so we give you this time, Jesus. We thank you for moments like this as your church where we can come together to lift up the name of Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. So again, I'm gonna give us like a brief overview. Um, those of you, how many of you read through the whole book of Nehemiah? This isn't a shaming session. I just wanna know how many, awesome. Um, the book of Nehemiah is probably one of the most epic historical accounts of the rebuilding of a group of people ever. And I know that sounds pretty drastic, but there's something super sweet about it. As we've been spending the last few months talking about getting into this book, um, there's something super timely about the book of Nehemiah for me, just in the state of the church, I think, in America, and how some of this applies to us today. Um, but it's also, it's a narrative, and so it's, it's a story written from, from Nehemiah's perspective, and it's a story of a building of God's people, a work that God was doing to build his people. But I want to give you some context this morning for kind of where things begin and end so that we can kind of understand how this fits in redemptive history altogether, and I hope that we can kind of grasp these 13 chapters in Nehemiah and understand how critical and incredible these 13 chapters are. And so as you look at the, the nation of Israel historically, like the nation as a whole, Israel as a nation was God's people, right? And so Israel exists with this covenant, and this covenant was an agreement 
between Israel and God, between them and God. And it, this covenant works sort of similarly to the relationships that parents have with their children. So you picture like the most idyllic like family situation where the parents are mature and they're loving and they're nurturing and they care for their children and the parents have this understanding with their children which goes something like this. If you listen to us, right, and, and you heed our warnings, you obey what we ask you to do, life will go well for you. That's, that, that's what we tell our kids. This is basically the deal that my parents gave me as I was a kid, right? Growing up, that's what I communicate to my kids, that if you honor us and you make good decisions and you listen to our guidance, that things will go well for you. Like if you don't stick things in outlets, right? If you eat all your veggies, if you go to sleep when you're supposed to, if you, um, if you do the things that you're asked, Things will go relatively well, and you'll stay relatively healthy and relatively rested. But if you don't do these things, you disobey what it is you've been asked to do, you disregard the warnings that have been given to you, things aren't going to go well for you. And so similarly, God gives these commandments to his children, Israel. And God promises to bless them and to protect them. He promises that, that this blessing would come if they're able to listen and they're able to obey what it is that God was asking of them. And so in Exodus and Deuteronomy, God shows his people how to live and how to behave as his people. And so this is not like a precursor in order to become his people. God's speaking to his people. And God was telling his people, he's telling them how they ought to live as his people. And so God's desire is to lead them towards full, the fullness of life, to lead them towards human flourishing, that they would be a blessed people. But what you soon see is that God's people, that they can't listen. Like, they just cannot obey. And so as God's people, they're sort of prone to wander. They're prone to walk away from God. They're like inherently disobedient, right? Read through the Old Testament. They can't maintain the covenant that God made with them no matter how many times they try, no matter how many like, opportunities that they're given. But they also go through some really bad seasons in following God, right? They, they, they kind of fluctuate up and down. And it sort of comes to this boiling point with a man named King Solomon. And King Solomon's sin and his disobedience to God and, and as a leader leads God to split the nation of Israel into, half, into halves. And so you end up with this northern, kingdom called, uh, this northern kingdom called Israel, and then you've got it split into the southern kingdom called Judah. And this is important because this split into this northern and southern kingdom historically represents kind of in part those who are largely disobedient being in the north, right? After the split, the northern kingdom has no good kings. And they continue on being these incredibly sinful, incredibly evil, and eventually um, they're overrun by this group called the Assyrians in 772 BC. And so the, the, the southern kingdom of Judah is meant to represent sort of the good ones, right? The, the good people. And they do okay for a little while. They have some good kings that come in. They have some bad kings mixed in there. But eventually things start heading toward this rampant sinfulness throughout their whole entire community. And so it finally sort of catches up to them. And God sends prophets to warn them, to tell them to repent and to turn back to God and to honor and obey the covenant, to live within the covenant that God established with them. Or else the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to carry out God's judgment. But they don't listen to God, right? They don't listen to this warning. They don't. And sure enough, just like they're warned, just like the prophet said it would happen, this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes, and the Babylonians, right off the bat, grab all the Jewish leaders. They grab the brightest, the wealthiest people. Like, they, they march them all off into exile into Babylon. And then they set up these, their equipment to besiege the city of Jerusalem, for almost three years, they besiege the city of Jerusalem. They tear it down. Finally, like, they're able to breach the city. And when the city's been lost, the, this king abandons the people. He abandons the city. He runs out the back. And, and this is what happens to Zedekiah, the king of Israel, as told in Jeremiah 52, verses 9 through 11. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath. And he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of, of Zedekiah before his eyes and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah. He poked him out, bound him in chains, 
in chains. The king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. So this is what happens to this last king of Israel, Zedekiah. So Nebuchadnezzar murders all the leaders of Israel. He murders Zedekiah's children, literally right before his eyes. And immediately after this, they, they gouge out his eyes so that the last thing he ever sees with his eyes are his children being murdered right before him. What a crazy, crazy setup. And then this man is torturously sort of kept alive and imprisoned for the rest of his life. And then Nebuchadnezzar destroys all of Israel, like the whole city's burned down, it's leveled until it's just this pile of ash and rubble on the ground. And then Nebuchadnezzar drags most of the people of Israel along with this humiliated blind king on this 1600 mile journey into exile. And what's left behind is this tiny population of people, this remnant as it's referred to. The, the poorest of the poor, like the, the pitiful people of Israel kind of sitting in the dust of their once great nation. And so that's the starting point of this rebuilding of God's people. This remnant is left. And we're not talking about like a minor renovation or like a little remodeling of sorts. Israel's literally taken down to the rubble. They're destroyed. And not just their buildings, their leadership is completely wiped clean. Like they're all murdered. And this king has been blinded. He's been humiliated like in the worst possible way. And he spends the rest of his life in prison, in exile, in Babylon. And the people are carted off with nothing but the clothes on their back and shame over their heads. What a crazy setup. And here's the amazing thing that we need to remember that when the prophet Jeremiah prophesied that destruction and the exile of Israel would happen, he also prophesied that there would be a rebuilding and a restoration and the return of God's people, that that would come as well. So understand this, that the Babylonians destroying Israel was not like this flood moment. This is not God in his righteous wrath like wanting to start with this clean slate. He already promised that he would never do that again in Genesis chapter 9 after Noah and the flood. So he promises that he would always remember his covenant with his people, that he would never exact that type of judgment again. And what that means is that this, this inevitable destruction of Israel that we're talking about, which would result in the, 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 the sinfulness of Israel, is not God saying to them, okay, I'm gonna edit, undo everything and start this fresh document over again. But it's actually something that was planned. And it's this really beautiful story of God's restorative and redemptive power over his people. That God had his people in his care through this whole process. Did you guys know that there's, there's a tree, um, there's some trees that have been adapted and that they're able to resist fire? They can adapt and resist fire. I read about this this past year and it kind of blew my mind. I don't know a ton about all the nature in Idaho, but we actually have some trees in Idaho that are resistant to fire like this. And it's not until fire hits that these trees are able to sprout new seeds. And so there's this tree called the lodgepole pine. It covers 2.3 million acres of land in the state of Idaho. And these trees drop these little cones that are sealed with this resin on them all the way around them. And the only way for their seeds to be released is for this resin to be burned off under a significant amount of heat. How cool is that? Sometimes new life can only come in the heat of fire, right? Sometimes that's the way, only way new life is to come. And sometimes new healthy growth requires a purging of the land. And so this is one of the themes of the book of Nehemiah. Something that you're going to see as you read through it is that God is sovereign. Amen, Joey Smoke. Swope, right? God's in control. It means that God has control over what he allows, what he allows his people to experience. And he can use hardship and trials and destruction and things in our lives to bring healing and to bring restoration and to bring redemption into our lives. And so this brief history lesson that I give you guys this morning brings us right up to the point of a book called Ezra. And Ezra and Nehemiah are right next to each other in the Bible, if you open up and look. There are these two distinct books as we see them in our Bibles, as Ezra and Nehemiah. But historically, they're actually referenced as one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. And so the book of Ezra begins with Cyrus, this king of Persia. 
And he's conquering the Babylonians, who we just talked about conquering Israel. And Cyrus, this king of Persia, makes this royal decree that says exiles no longer have to be in exile anymore. So he releases them to return back to whatever country they came from. And so some Jews return back to Israel. And what happens in the book of Ezra is that God puts it on the heart of a man named Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple, the place of worship. But when the temple gets rebuilt, it really doesn't have the same desired effect of rebuilding all the people into their former glory. It's not the same as it used to be. God's presence doesn't show up in this temple. The the people of Israel are still in total disarray. And so Ezra, this teacher of God's law and this prophet, begins shepherding the hearts of Israel back towards God, spiritually speaking. And he does this by teaching them the law. But there really isn't a huge response from God's people. It's actually um, where we open up with Nehemiah. So this morning, again, I'm going to read through a a large section of text here. And I want to give you some sense of the complete narrative of the book of Nehemiah. This is, I've caught you up to where we're at in starting Nehemiah. And I would have loved to have read like all 13 chapters of Nehemiah this morning, but I figured, you know, an hour and a half of reading probably would have left some of you leaving. Um, So... I've compressed it a little bit. Um, so I want to start with Nehemiah chapter 1. And we're going to have this on the screen. If you, hey, Levi, can you turn the lights off like above the screen? I'm not sure which one they are, but it'll help. There we go. Thank you. So bear with me, and I want you to take this in. Try to grasp as much of this summary of the story as you can. Ready? 12 minutes. Here we go. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in, the Sus- in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, in the rules and that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Mo- Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, uh, though you are outcasts, sorry, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. There are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Then I went up in the night 
by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God, that he had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forth and the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. They all plotted, plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who had lived there came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped by his side while we built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the, of the governor. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for work. Moreover, there were, my, there, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember, remember this passage too. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. They had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand it, uh, what they, understand what they heard. 
on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord and their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, for another quarter if they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands of the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered, listen to this, the evil that Eliashab had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. I also found out the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice, but I warned them and said, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. In those days, also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And this is at the end of verse, uh, chapter 13. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. There you go. We did it. So this book of Nehemiah is divided up into two sort of movements. In the first half of the book, you have this work and the, the rebuilding of the wall. And then the second half, you have the law and the rebuilding of worship in Israel. And these two movements are separated right in the middle of the book by the completion of the wall itself. And the major themes that you see in this first movement have to do with the physical protection of Israel, right? And then later on, you see the shift, toward, the shift toward the spiritual protection of Israel. And it's a really broad way to sort of understand and see this picture of Nehemiah. And the very basic summary of this whole book is this. The story begins with Nehemiah, the cupbearer of the king of 
Persia. And he's hearing about Israel. He's hearing that the city's in ruins, that the walls are burned, and it's reported that the people who survived the exile, that they're in great duress and they're in great shame. And so upon hearing this about his people, Nehemiah, who's essentially this prince of Persia at this point, he's this man of great honor, this man of great prestige. He's living in luxury and in a ton of comfort. And when he hears this about his people, it says he weeps. And he mourns and he prays and he does this for days. And he prays that God would restore his brothers and sisters and he asks for an opportunity to go help his people. And so finally he's miraculously given this opportunity to do so. And the king of Persia allows him to go. But not only that, the king of Persia actually funds the rebuilding project as well. And so Nehemiah goes, he begins planning this rebuild of this wall. And he calls the people of Israel to join them in this process and they get off to this really good start. And then they face some opposition off the bat, which really does sort of test Nehemiah's calling. But it really just reveals his heart. Like, and, and Nehemiah's awesome, like great leadership skills. This wall's completed in 52 days. If you've, st- if you've been to Israel and you've stood and seen portions of it, this is quite the feat to see this thing built in 52 days, less than two months. And the people are encouraged to come back into the city. And then Ezra, who we just heard about earlier, he comes onto the scene. They all gather in one big city to to read the word of the God all morning. I don't know if you caught that when I said that, that they read it all morning. And then this leads all of Israel to this great revival in God's people. Like they start confessing their sin. They rededicate themselves to God and to one another. They re-sign this covenant as a community, and they basically make this promise together to say, look, we're gonna love God, we're gonna obey God, we're only going to worship God. Everything in Israel is amazing, like it's returning back to what it was, it's incredible. The city's been rebuilt, the people have been restored, worship and praises are being heard for miles. And so Nehemiah's like, my work's done, let me go back to my original job. And so he goes back. And then the last chapter is him coming back into Jerusalem and what he sees and what he describes is like horribly anticlimactic, right? Because he comes back in and it's depressing. So instead of the the, the rebuilding of the city and the rededication of their hearts leading to this community that's like physically vibrant and spiritually vibrant and flourishing, living under God's covenant, what Nehemiah finds is a people that are just an absolute mess. They're right back to where they started. They, they end up giving this guy Tobiah, who's one of the original uh, people who ridiculed and opposed the building uh, and who threatened their lives and they mocked God. And they let this dude move into the temple. He makes his, this room for himself in there, in the room where they store all their tithes and offerings. And this room is empty with the exception of his stuff. And so they stopped supporting their priests and their Levites. They weren't supporting those that were like receiving their living um, as priests and, and Levites. So the priests and the Levites who are these paid ministers of their time, they go back home so they could support themselves and eat. And so this community as a whole rejects all of God's commands to be this holy and set apart people. They, they start marrying other people and instead they, they, they marry people who are like hate God, like that are totally opposed. And so they they disregard the Sabbath, they turn this temple into a marketplace, and Nehemiah comes back in and he's ticked. Like to say the least, he's furious about what he sees. And so this book ends with Nehemiah literally taking Tobias's furniture, throwing it out on the streets. Like this is a real moment in history, right? And, And he gets so frustrated, he writes in chapter 13, verse 25, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Like he's just like, Kicking butt and taking names, you know? Talk about really intense church discipline. Um, And then the the book ends with this final passage. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign. I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. So Nehemiah, he cleans house. He takes time to correct Israel. He's sort of resetting these fractures that have been accumulated in in the body of God's people over time. And and when you see all of this in the context of Israel's sort of historical and perpetual like disobedience toward God, the book ends with this hopeless sort of like vain correction. 
it's really weird. Like, you're, it's so exciting, like, reading through the book of Nehemiah, and then you get to the end, you're like, wah, wah, like, what in the world? And, and Nehemiah realizes in that moment that Israel's not going to change. Like, like Nehemiah's totally defeated. And I think it's because he's realizing just, like, how eternally fractured mankind is, how broken Israel is, that they'll always inevitably migrate back towards their sin. They'll migrate back to themselves. They'll migrate back to like a communal destruction of sorts. Uh, and, and there's no new temple, no beautiful wall, no successful like community building project that's actually going to bring everybody together. No amount of like zealous rededication to God or to one another. None of it has enough power to change the underlying heart condition of Israel. That's really the summary. And so where's the gospel in this? And this is where I want to challenge you a bit this morning. Because this seems pretty depressing. And it ends weirdly. And then this last chapter is like, you, you sort of sit there going like, what happened? Like, where is the hope in this? And I'm so excited for us to spend the next, like, two and a half months uncovering the pieces in this book and making sense of the gospel and seeing the parallels to Christ throughout this book. Because one of the things that's important as we look verse by verse through Nehemiah is to not over-spiritualize, like, every single detail of this narrative and, like, start to get lost in the weeds, but this is why I wanted to take a Sunday to really look at the book as a whole. Because when you take a step back, you can observe some of these themes that the entire book has. And these themes form what's called like a melodic line, right? Which is this kind of thread that runs through the whole book from start to finish. And the smaller details, everything that's being communicated is pointing back to this truth. This truth. And I think one of the, the lines that runs through the back of the book of Nehemiah is this. That God is rebuilding his people for himself and nothing will stop him from accomplishing it. Is that not good news? God is rebuilding his people for himself and nothing will stop him from accomplishing this. God's rebuilding because the original build was broken. Like God created the world and everything in it and he looks out across his creation in Genesis chapter 1 and what does he declare? That it's good, that it's not broken. It's good. And then sin enters into the creation and, and through this, the disobedience of man and, and this good creation becomes broken and not just in need of like a little touch up and a little remodel, like putting lipstick on a pig, but it needs to be torn down and completely rebuilt. It needs something new. And God had this plan from the beginning of time to rebuild his people. And it would come through the, this covenant relationship that we talked about at the very beginning. But, but the problem with covenants is that they only work when two parties fulfill their responsibilities. It takes two. And, and God doesn't give up on, on rebuilds. He doesn't run out of patience. He doesn't run out of materials. God's going to rebuild. He's going to restore. He's going to redeem his people no matter what. Like even despite Satan's best schemes to oppose building from, out, from outside the community, despite division, despite disunity, despite like conspiracy that, that slows down this rebuilding project from within the community, Despite the very heart of the problem of Israel, which is in the heart of each and every man and woman who is irreparably broken because of sin and totally inca incapable on our own of fulfilling the covenant ourselves. So how do we know that God's going to do this and what's he going to do? Well, he promises us that he will do the work. He promises us that he will rebuild. And this is what I want to close with this morning. And what I hope we can carry in our hearts as we continue the study of Nehemiah together over the coming weeks is that God had a plan and a purpose. He had a plan and a promise. He, he wasn't rebuilding as he went. God does not rebuild things like I rebuild my house, right? Start with the bathroom. And then like after the bathroom, how many of you guys have an old house? And you're like, I'm never going to end with this thing, right? Like it's gonna, and by the time I get done with it, I'm going to have to start over again and start that process over again. But that's not how God works. And so he wasn't done with just rebuilding the temple and just the walls. He, like, he 
let Israel know his plan way ahead of time. Like actually even before Israel was destroyed, before the exile even began, which is crazy that he's just letting them know that this is going to happen. And you see God's promises solve the problem at the very center of it all. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 2 through 4, and I think this is on the screen. He says, thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Please hear this. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built. Jump to verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. There is no greater promise for Israel than that. God's saying like, I will rebuild you. You who are in rubble and ash, I will restore you. Like I, I will make a new covenant with you because you can't keep the original covenant. He had to re rebuild. And he says, I, I won't quit on you even though you have quit on me. Time and time again, like I will not quit on you. You're mine, like just like a husband holds fast to his wife, no matter what, so I will hold fast to you. That's his promise. And this old covenant showed how, how the problem is not in the actions of Israel. Where is it actually at? It's in their hearts. The problem's in their hearts. And so what God's gonna do is he's gonna write the law in their heart, in the, on the hearts of the Israelites, not as external rules that Israel is just awful at following, but he's actually gonna transform hearts to live and breathe what is right. God says, you will be my people through and through, and, and the effects of sin will no longer keep you separated from me, but you will be restored back to me, and the infection of sin in your hearts, it will be healed, and you won't be prone to wander. You'll actually be prone to be drawn to me. Like, that's the gospel of Jesus. And God is graciously promising this nation and these people that he's gonna rebuild them, that he's gonna restore them, that he's gonna make this new covenant for them while they're living in this in licentiousness and they're living in sin, like they're totally given to it. And he's telling them that there's this promise ahead that he's gonna rebuild them even though they're turning their backs on him, his promise still holds true. Flip ahead to the New Testament. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. When we take communion as a church, we remember this new covenant that we're talking about, which is promised all the way back in Jeremiah 31, before all the events of Nehemiah occur, which was instituted and fulfilled by Jesus Christ on the night that he was betrayed. And this new covenant came at a price in order for us to be able to receive new hearts, in order for our sin to be forgiven, for our iniquities to be forgiven. It required a sacrifice of a spotless, righteous, perfect man, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself. And so if you're not a Christian, history shows us that man's heart is sick beyond repair. There's just no hope. And that the sickness doesn't just last a single lifetime, but it's like an eternal sickness that leads to eternal destruction. And so a new heart is available to you and I, like a complete and total rebuild, a complete restoration. New life is available to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. This is something that you can receive here today. In fact, after I'm done preaching this morning, we're gonna have a prayer team of people up here that would love to pray with you, answer any questions that you have this morning. But if you're a follower of Jesus, might I remind you this morning that our hope is complete because the rebuild is already complete. 
that our hearts as we follow Jesus are rebuilt, but, but our flesh and our community is sort of playing catch up, isn't it? Like, and that's what sanctification is. It's this process of being made into what we are, of being made holy as we are holy. And so my encouragement to you today is if you are a Christian, it's to embrace the rebuilding process. Embrace it. And it's not comfortable. Walls have to be torn down in order for something to be built back up. Some of you are experiencing this in your life right now as we speak. Things may feel out of control, like the structures in your life are being torn down, like your hearts are being demolished, areas of our lives that that have been corrupted by sin and that we've given over to other, other things are being literally reduced to rubble in some of your lives right now, and the Lord needs that in order to begin the rebuilding process that he wants to do in you. That's the process of being rebuilt or made new again. We call that salvation. Some of you sit here, and I know that you're going through this rebuilding process. Like, I know your stories, and it's real. And I want to bless you, and I want to encourage you, and I want to pray for you as you go through that, that we as a community of faith, as a church, we are experiencing this. Like, if you're new here, you might not know what our church has gone through in the last three years. I mean, I'll I'll catch you up real quick on my own pain. Because the last three years have been a lot of new people. People coming, people going, COVID issues, growth issues, like you name it, we've kind of experienced it in three years. But if you wanna talk about a forest fire, like a purging fire, it's what's happening in the church right now in America. It's happening. And I feel that that's why we've been, what we've been going through over the last couple years is I like, do my time with the Lord and I'm like can't make sense of pain and grief and hurt and everything that I felt like I've experienced in the last three years which feel as though you're in the fire of it all because God is purging he's he's burning things down because he's going to rebuild something and what I love about the story of Nehemiah is it starts with who a remnant the poor and the pit, like the, the the marginal is the smallest the small group that it starts with and I sort of feel like that process is happening right now in the church of America. And I feel like in our own church, that the tide is turning, that, that God is doing something new, that the season is changing, both figuratively and literally, right? And my hope and my prayer on my behalf and our elders is that through studying the book of Nehemiah, that we can actually lead our community of faith into a season of renewed strength and renewed power in the spirit, amen? That's the hope. We wanna see spiritual vibrancy. We wanna see people's lives producing fruit, like flourishing in our community, like just as God intended it as a result of his son's death and resurrection. So as we read through the book of Nehemiah, be encouraged and hopeful in what a community of faithful, obedient, God-dependent, Holy Spirit-infused people can actually do. And Lord willing, we're gonna come together. Like the, the, the new people here, the people that have been here for a while, the young people in the room, the older people in the room, you know who you are. We're gonna come together and we're going to arise and build. Like that's the future of his church. He's gonna make it happen. Nehemiah 4.14, and I'll close with this. He says this at the beginning of the building process that so they face their first opposition. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers and your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Before we even get into the series for the next two and a half months, my question to you is, are you ready to fight? Are we going to be a people who don't shy at 12 minutes of scripture? (laughs) Getting on our faces and praying. Seeking the Lord for what he wants for our city, for our state, for our nation, and for our world. For our friends and our family, our daughters and our sons, our wives, our husbands, our friends. Like, are we going to be a people who fight? Or will we be, continue to be a people that will just sit in the pews and take it all in and observe the game and never get off the bench to actually engage in the moment that Jesus has given us? 
you are alive for a time and a purpose. And I really pray that the next two and a half months will be our church just digging in, devouring God's word, reading through the book of Nehemiah, seeing some of the overlay of how it applies to us today, but also seeing historically how God has moved and what that means for you and I. I'm encouraged at what Jesus is doing right now. It's something really sweet. And you'll either choose to peace into the work that he's doing or peace out. And I hope that we choose to peace in. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for your people. And as I read through this book, I can't help but just get fired up inside about this man who felt so deeply for his hometown. That he was willing to do whatever he had to, Jesus, to be a part of the rebuilding process. And to see how his heart just ached at the end of it all after he had put so much time and effort into it and doing what he thought would actually rebuild it. And to see at the end, God, that his heart ached for the fact that the people returned to what they knew. And yet, Jesus, I can't help but think we're living in a day and time where it feels as though everybody just keeps returning to what they know. And I pray for us this morning that we'd start out on our knees, on our faces before you. God, you know our hearts. You know the makeup of our bodies and our lives. Jesus, you know how far off we are and how much we need you. And I pray that you draw near. And I do pray that the next couple months, God, are just life-giving, like this opportunity for our church to grow, not only in the knowledge of your word, but also in the engagement of your spirit. And also in acting, moving, doing what it is you ask us to do, Jesus, being the salt and the light on this earth that you've placed us on. And so I thank you for this book, Lord. I thank you for the encouragement that it brings to us. And I pray that you would continue to challenge us, Jesus, that your church would look differently even as a result of spending a couple months in a book of the Bible, that you'd change us from the inside out, that you'd rebuild us, that we'd be a people that would arise and fight and be willing to do what we have to, Jesus, and get serious about our faith. Bless each person here, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we sing some songs, our prayer team's gonna be up here, and I encourage you this morning, if there's things you're wrestling with, if there's questions that you have, come grab one of us. Like, we're here to do business with God this morning. Worship is a response to what Jesus is already doing. And so this morning as we sing, it's not just Christian karaoke. We're responding to the word of God this morning. And so I encourage you to let your hearts be drawn to him and to worship him as we sing.